and the actual individual employee is always very interested, you know, because their kids say, hey, what are you doing to you know, improve the environment? But it's that middle manager. And the middle manager could be the, the business manager or it could be the product manager, the manager who's got responsibility from idea all the way to commercialization and all the way out, you know, to phase out when the useful life of that product is over uh, from a business standpoint. And so we've targeted to think the product manager is really a key person to really embed this sustainability into it. But the problem is, unless you can unfreeze that frozen middle, yeah. not much happens. Welcome to Innovation Talks. Join us weekly as we discuss with distinguished industry guests how to refine and improve corporate innovation and new product development. Hosted by Paul Heller, Sophion Chief Evangelist. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Glad you could join me again. Hope you're having a great week. I have a guest today, Jim Fava, and Jim spent his career supporting businesses and governments to understand the risks and opportunities facing them and providing guidance, tools, know-how, and strategies and actions to enable them to operate in a more environmentally responsible and sustainable fashion. Uh, he's been called the father of modern-day life cycle assessment and has really spent a large part of his career promoting and developing the practice and application of life cycle information to support decision-making globally. Jim recently retired from the company he had founded and was working with, but he's still active and he's willing to share his knowledge and experience with us, which we're very grateful for. Jim, welcome to the show. Well, Paul, thanks for inviting me and I look forward to uh, having a wonderful conversation and sharing insights that I've had. Great. From over 45 years of working in the field. There you go. And Jim, uh, where, where are you talking to us from today? Well, I'm talking to everybody from Dominical, Costa Rica. We live in the mountains overlooking the, uh, the ocean and the Rio Baru watershed. Paradise. We have toucans and we also have scorpions and snakes. And, uh, but we live in the jungle and uh, <laughs> we love it. Yeah. How exciting. I think you're the first guest Certainly the first guest I've had from Costa Rica and maybe the first guest I've had from a uh, what we'd call an exotic location. So that sounds, that sounds marvelous. <laughs> yeah, people I on, on these these uh, talks and the podcasts and kind of thing, you know, sometimes it's snowing up in Boston and I sort of, you know, reach out why I'm, I'm barefoot and in shorts and, uh, <laughs> you know, overlooking my pool and about ready to get in the pool as soon as the uh, – you know, the conversation is over. So, yeah, living here is, uh, we feel like we're, we're we're honored and living in paradise. There you go. Well, then, thanks for taking a step away from it to, to join us on this podcast. So, Jim, maybe just tell us about your, your career. How did you get into this uh, whole area of sustainability and, and just share your journey a little bit? Sure, yeah. It all started about 55 years ago. I was part of the University of Maryland. I was in, in, in school. And I unfortunately, uh, I joined a fraternity that turned out to be the Animal House fraternity <laughs> at the University of Maryland. And <laughs> as a result, uh, my grades that were in, in, in senior high school, I was a class president and lettered in four sports. And my grades initially were A's and B's. And after a semester or two at the university and the Animal House fraternity, it went down to D's and C's and F's kind of thing. And so my dad was a colonel in the Air Force, and he came across this job offering announcement 
for a technician aboard an oceanographic research vessel. And so I got the job in the, like the winter of 1967, and we went around the world, and we studied the oceans and all the different types of things related to the ocean. But when we got into ports, pretty much all around the world, you could, you know, number of miles out at sea, you could smell. And the air was, you know, was polluted. You got into the, the ports and, the, you know, there was trash everywhere. The, the water was always polluted. And it was a very much a, an awakening of, wow, humans have created a major impact on the world. And this is, this is like in the late 60s. So this is before the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency was formed. And so it was just like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Uh, we got to do something about it. So that forced me when I got back from the ship to get on on board again and being active in, in studying and getting A's and B's. And I, as a result, I got a master's in fisheries biology and a PhD in environmental toxicology and chemistry. And that just started my whole area of interested in environment and environmental science and going from there. And at that point, there was no environmental science curriculum mm, yeah. that just wasn't available yet. So I graduated a PhD in 1975. And what happened was because there's not environmental science, I ended up getting a PhD in the School of Dairy Science because that was the only applied research that they had at the University of Maryland. And so that started. And then there goes on to consulting and volunteer work from then on. But my whole career was based on, you know, how do we deal and help humans interacting with the environment, whether it's companies, NGOs, governments, to drive a more sustainable world. Yeah. And, you know, things. So that was sort of the, the major trigger that made my whole career started. Yeah, great story from, a, I don't want to say college dropout, but just no, no, pretty no, much no, no, no. all the way to a PhD from the same university. That's <laughs> not bad. They let you back in. <laughs> well, I had to get A's in uh, biostatistics and organic chemistry mm. to get into graduate school. That was pretty <laughs> tough. I bet it was. I bet it was. So, so tell me about life cycle assessment. What is that? And how did you come across that? I guess it started, I was in the consulting, I was working with consulting company and was working with a big company out of Columbus, Ohio, a research organizations, Patel Memorial Institute. In Cincinnati, Ohio, there was another company called Procter & Gamble. You might have heard of it. Heard of them. Yeah. And they had a diapers, you know, and what started back in the late 80s was this sort of understanding that you had disposable single-use diapers, mm. and they went immediately to the landfill. And then you had cloth diapers. They didn't go in the landfill, but you had to wash them. You had to take them to maybe to the, to the, the cleaners, and you'd use detergent and hot water to use energy and so forth. And so the cloth diaper industry came out with a um, statement that, well, we are good for the environment because we don't create solid waste. And so obviously the, the single-use diaper organization said, yes, but if you look at things from a life cycle perspective, they didn't call it life cycle assessment then, but sort of a mass balance, energy balance perspective, then you maybe you don't create solid waste, but if you do cloth diaper, then you end up getting to the point where you are heating the water, you're using detergents, there's all that other impacts. And so that really raised a big aha right at the beginning that, that all products have impacts and you really need to get to the point of how do you actually have a, a measurement, a methodology 
scientifically valid and standardized to really look at those various impacts along the whole life cycle of a product for raw material acquisition, through manufacturing, through use, and to, you know, end of life. And so I was president of an organization called the Society of Environmental Toxicology and Chemistry, and they had what they call a Pelston workshop series. You get 50 people together, plus or minus, uh, for a week in a nice resort in the summertime, and then you sort of lock the door and you write a book. I experience in uh, doing the same thing in ecological risk assessment, and then this life cycle issues surfaced. And so CTAC actually organized a Pelston workshop that I organized and helped chair, but there were 45 other people there that were really provided all the technical background. And we developed what was called the technical framework for life cycle assessment. You know, it's sort of the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of what LCA was. This is in 19, the summer of 1990. And then CTAC then, through the next three years, we had a second workshop on impact assessment, data quality, and code of practice. And the code of practice was actually the fourth workshop report that we did. That we actually each of them resulted in a book, and they're all available, wow. you know, wow. on the CTAC website. And we could make that available to you know yeah. for other folks later. And then what happened was is that because I had chaired the um, the CTAC workshop, I got asked by the head of delegation for the U.S. going to the ISO. Uh, environmental management standards, should we write an ISO LCA standard? So I chaired an international group and we made a recommendation back to ISO that yes, we should have LCA standards for gold of practice and, and so forth. So that started in about 1993. And then I, I followed that for a few, few years, but that's where LCA in its current foundation really, really came from. And it, what's solid about all that, and people have rectified that over and over again, is that the CTAC activity really maintained and developed the scientific foundation for what life cycle assessment is. And then ISO, International Organization for Standardization, actually was able then to standardize it with, you know, countries from all over the world that debated and agreed and modified it. So now we have a standard methodology. And so when people are looking at the environmental impacts of a product from cradle to grave, and you're looking at toxicity and water use and energy use and recyclability and all these other metrics, there's a scientific foundation for the methodology and there's a standard methodology so it can be replicated and used you know, around the world. Fantastic. And I, I imagine uh, some of our listeners are probably very familiar with it and some of them are hearing it for the first time. So it's it's an interesting, that was a great introduction to it. I, I suspect the organizations that you were working with are still out there consulting and helping companies set up life cycle analysis programs and, and do the work, right? Yeah. And it's it's sort of interesting for the since about 1990, 91, 92, I've sort of been working on two parallel paths, you know, building the supply and also trying to create the demand for the life cycle information. And it's not necessarily the results of a life cycle assessment methodology following the standard, but getting people in the, you know, in the innovators, the technology, you know, experts and companies, getting them to the point where they're thinking beyond a single issue, just like energy or, or water. But then they look at if I change the energy, what might happen to materials I use somewhere else in the life cycle of, of the product and material that I'm, I'm managing and, and selling. That part of it, I think, is really critical. And that's where LCA really provides that um, knowledge 
for the decision makers. So I, I find it's very useful for people to think from a life cycle perspective. But the dilemma is you have to have the supply. So you need the consulting firm, the databases and, and all that expertise. But you also need to have the demand for it. So a lot of my work was not as much on the on the supply, the details of the methodology or details of the database, those kind of things. A lot of people really do really good at that around the world. And I, I know them and we team with them all the time. My interest was really when how do you get people within the business world or government, you know, to say, hey, I want to use life cycle information. And so I use the word life cycle thinking and life cycle information as opposed to having it to be a hundred percent following the ISO LCA standard, because there's a lot of just general thinking. I mean, you don't need to have a, a rocket science when you design a product and you make it, you know, more maybe energy efficient or something. On the other hand, you at the end of life, if you're not thinking about what happens at the end of life of that product, then you're really missing the boat. You're not doing what you should be doing as a designer. Well, the, the exciting thing is, is now a lot more attention, focus, interest around the whole topic, right? You were, you were there when it was tough. There were a few companies who were, were active in it, but by and large, people were standing on the sidelines, not, not sure they wanted to get into it or, or invest in it. It wasn't a core part of their strategy. And we were just talking, uh, with Kevin Brady, who you know, he was mentioning now how the people who fund corporations as well as the startups are, it's there now. It's real. The money's behind it. The focus is behind it. So, uh, I suspect it's a little bit easier now to get it, get the demand going than it might have been uh, 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. Yeah, it is, Paul. But part of the other thing that I've shared with you, I, you know, the Souza and I with, uh, our moderator, Shelly Hughes, who's also here from Costa Rica, I have a podcast. And it's really about how do you get to the point of how do you unfreeze the frozen middle? You've got yeah. the executive board and all that saying, yeah, we this is important. And they got enterprise-wide goals and, and, and targets and so forth. And the actual individual employee is always very interested, you know, because their kids say, hey, what are you doing to you know, improve the environment, but it's that middle manager. And the middle manager could be the, the business manager or it could be the product manager, the manager who's got responsibility from idea all the way to commercialization and all the way out, you know, to phase out when the useful life of that product is over uh, from a business standpoint. And so we've targeted to think the product manager is really a key person to really embed this sustainability into it. But the problem is, unless you can unfreeze that frozen middle, yeah, not much happens. And so there's a lot of interest at the hype level, at the enterprise level, but it's, it's sort of sometimes gets held up. It doesn't move as fastly as I want. And I can give you a, a quick example. I, I was on a stakeholder advisory council to the executive team of a major chemical company over in Germany. And we met once a year for about a day and a half, and we had talked about issues that were concerning, you know, them. And, you know, one of the issues they concerned was, is how do you really embed it into the company? And to get, so it's just part of the day-to-day -day operations. So we, we talk about ideas and we had, you know, the president of the World Business Council there and, and other leading people around the world. After the meeting was over, I had dinner. I went to a local pub and a lot of the workers for the chemical plant was there. And we, we started talking and I talked about this whole 
topic of sustainability and embedding it into the product design and you know commercialization. And they were fully in, in favor of it. And I said, well, I just finished meetings with the executive board and they were fully in favor of it. This worker said, well, when it comes to my boss, he or she says, well, yeah, I like it, but I, I can't do it because my goals don't align with right. this, the disconnect. And so we came back and we said, well, we how do, how do we work together to unfreeze the frozen middle? So part of the uh, conversation, why I'm interested in the conversation with you, as well as some of these other folks that we're talking about, podcasts and others we'll be interviewing, is basically as to what are the actions we need to take to really unfreeze that frozen middle? And there's no easy answer and everybody's yeah. different, but uh, there's a lot of success stories. And that's what we want to capture and get out for folks like you who are in the innovation business, the folks that you you know interact with. That is what you're going to need to know, not just not only the what and the why, but how, how, how do you actually do it. Exactly. Exactly. Totally agree with that. Well, I know, Jim, across your, your experiences, you came up with uh, what you call the golden rules for a sustainable <laughs> business. So what are those? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's 10 golden rules. And that, you know, that's another, if there's an interest, we could probably tackle two golden rules at a time in more detail to, yeah. you know, to, to get into it. Because I think there's a lot of interest. Because what, what people were interested in is they sort of got the what and the why, but they didn't know the how. How, how do I respond? And so we came up with sort of, you know, these 10 golden rules. And they evolved over the last five eight, nine years. But one of the things that really made a difference as I started applying them and, and, and working with companies was that the who you want to target is different. For years, I've been working on sort of the EH&S sustainability contact within a company. And while that's good, in terms of really making a difference or unfreezing the frozen middle, it's not the EHS professional or the sustainable development professional, they have an influence. They're going to have input into that. But it's really the, the business manager or what I just talked about a minute ago, the product manager, focusing more on the product size as opposed to the, inter the enterprise perspective. So part of that is recognizing who is the person that we really need to engage. And we had a, a situation a, a number of years ago, we worked with a computer company and they took somebody from the EH&S, Environment Health and Safety Department, and sort of put them into the design group. But the dilemma was that person was good on LCA and environmental issues, but they could not speak the language of the designers. And so what they ended up doing was taking that person back into the Environment Health and Safety Department and taking somebody from the design department and then provided knowledge and education to them about what are the environmental issues and why, and then began to do that translation. So there was a big aha that if you're going to reach out from the environmental sustainability community to the people who are actually the decision makers, you need not to speak your environmental eutrophication, acid rain, or all this other language that means something to the environmental community, but doesn't mean anything to the, uh, the designer community. So you really need to translate that. So one, the key issue was, and this is where the golden rules evolved in providing support, was who are those right people? And then how do you use a language that they understand so they can actually take action now 
as opposed to, oh, I got to study this more. I got to learn. Well, mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you mean by acid rain? I don't know what that means. How does right, it apply to me? Right, yeah. It makes a lot of sense. It makes an awful lot of sense. I don't know if it's the best way to approach this, just list, you know, name the 10 golden rules or, or, you know, a minute on each one. I think the idea of delving into those in future episodes is a great idea. So, so we'll definitely plan that. But from a, an introductory, a primer session, maybe you could just take us through what they are, some of them or all of them or whatever is appropriate. I'd be happy to. The first one is there's no green products. Only greener or more sustainable products. Wow. Um, when you think about any product, it uses material with, at the end of life, there's something happening to it. So there's no product that is just green. I mean, people say we got a green product. Right. Yeah. They all use material, they all use energy. So, and Al Iannuzzi, who was, he's now vice president of sustainability for SD Lauder, he was the major author, but I contributed to couple of his books, and he's the third book he's, he's working on now, and I'll be working with him on that, is uh, Greener Products. Golden rule number one, there's no green product. It's only, only greener products. The second rule is that LCA provides an understanding of impacts over the entire life cycle. Too many times, even today, we've got people focusing on one life cycle stage and one impact. I mean, right now, climate change is a number one priority we've got to deal with you know, climate change. But it's not the only issue that companies or society and governments have to deal with. You got water issues, you got biodiversity issues, and climate is important. But then a product is not just in the, you know, the end of life, this is like the diaper debate, it was just the end right. of life until you brought it to the entire life cycle. And so you really have to understand what those impacts are over the entire life cycle and have multiple impacts. And so that was rule number two. Rule number three is that life cycle information is essential, but not sufficient. So you need that information on hotspot analysis and you know where those impacts are over the entire you know, life cycle. On the other hand, there's scientific studies, there's expert opinion, there's you know, stakeholder perspectives, there's existing standards that all need to be factored in to providing information for the innovators and decision makers yeah, to right. take life cycle information. Yes, it's essential, but it's not sufficient to really make more informed decision. The fourth golden rule is speak the language of your audience. It, this is the translation issue. I mean, the LCA community comes in and talks about you know the environmental impacts, but the business person is interested in, okay, does it help me grow my revenue? Does it enhance my brand? Does it reduce my cost? Does it mitigate my, my risk? There's a number of stories about that that we can get into you know, longer. But that, to me, is probably one of the most important things when you talk about from the environmental sustainability community. You have to put what we want to have happen in the language of the decision makers. And that's our revenue, brand, cost, and risk management. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The other golden rule, sixth golden rule, if you don't know your designation... Uh, any tool will get you there. And so part of it is it, like the Alice in Wonderland quote, you know, if you don't know where you're going, you know, any road will get you there. And so this is the exact same thing. If you don't have a vision of where you want to be, LCA or, you know, some other kind of tool will be good. So part of that is if you don't, you need to know your destination, you need to know the vision, and you know where you want to be as success, then you can put the right tools and inf- information to make that happen. The other one is you hear about environment, health, 
environment, social, and economics. That's been the big part of sustainability for, for decades. But if you don't have, it's like three legs of a stool. You know, each of the leg is, you know, environment, social, or uh, economics. But if you don't have a seat, then without a seat, three legs of stools are useless. And so the seat is the governance. And so unless you have a solid governance where sustainability or criteria metrics are from the top down, down to the middle managers, so their performance goals and bonuses are incorporate this, you know, sustainability uh, attributes, there's nothing going to happen. So that was number six. Number seven is meet them where they are. Every company, and this goes back to Kevin Brady, and Kevin Brady were founders of B&I and two others were founder of Five Winds International. And just to, to back up, to sort of clarify a little bit, Five Winds International was around for 15 years. We merged with a company in Germany called PE, and then they were bought recently by, uh, they changed the name to ThinkStep, was bought by Spira, and then Spira was bought by BlackRock. But I left ThinkStep, you know, in 2016 and joined a company called Enthesis on a two days a week, you know, part-time basis. So I actually re- retired from ThinkStep in 2016, but not really retired. And then I retired, you know, from uh, Enthesis. So I didn't found in thesis, but I founded Five Wins. Five Wins, right. So rule number seven, we started a, a product sustainability roundtable that we started in early 90s, and it ran for 25 years, and I think Enthesis still has it going. But what it did, it brought 10 to 15 companies together for a couple of days, a couple of times a year. And what was interesting was that we, this is the early days of life cycle. And I said, well, why isn't everybody doing LCA? Well, the feedback from the companies was, well, no one's asking me to do it. There's not a legal requirement. And that was the day before sustainability really wasn't a business perspective. It was just a who knows what kind. So we came up with these four goals, the four sort of rules. So there's compliant strategy, uh, market-driven strategy, an engaged strategy, and a shaping the future strategy. And Kevin and I and others had worked on that you know, together a long time ago. So if you had a legal, legal requirement, then it's compliance. If you got a customer demanding it from you, then it's a market driven. If you want to, you know, sort of engage in trade association, the value chain, it's called engage or competitive. And the, the fourth one was shaping the future. And those were companies like Unilever and others that were really leading out in, there. Uh, yeah. You know, way, way out there kind of thing. So that was seven. Eight was focus on positive impacts, not just data and information. And this is one that I find to be most useful. The LCA community or the environment, health and safe community are coming out. And this goes back to the translation issue as well, comes out at with, you know, this is my LCA results or my EHS results, but it's not really relevant to the useful to the, the strategy people, the marketing people, the innovation people. And basically what you want to have happen is change to occur. This is the how. And you basically want business value and you want positive sustainability impacts. And so that's what you want to go. And so the LCA or environmental community is over here, but you need to talk to the, the people who are going to use the information in a language that they understand. And ultimately what you want is not them using it, but you want business value and positive sustainability impacts. So to me, that's critical. And their companies have done that. And number nine is that it's all about actions and changing there's a nice little graph that's been around, you know, for for 20 years. And if you you need to have goals and action all the way before you get 
change. And the 10th the golden rule is just that there's an enormous life cycle community out there around the world. Uh, and they are resourced, they're sharing information among themselves. It's, it's really more readily available than it ever was. So it, the 10 golden rules are fun. I've enjoyed it. And I've been able to you know, share that. And it's been very, very, very useful. Yeah, it's a great framework. It's really a well thought out, great framework. Uh, and to have 10 of them, that's great. You know, it's a, yeah. <laughs> people might have one or two ideas, right? You've got kind of these 10 foundational and they each one, they all make sense, Jim. So thanks so much for sharing that. You mentioned your podcast, Five Lives to 50, I think it's called. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Just starting it, I think. Yeah, we are. We had our first podcast a week or so ago. Okay, and it's it's really quite uh, quite interesting. Neil D'Souza is a uh, he and I used to work together at ThinkStep, and he's a more of a technology person, and I bring in more of the sort of the soft skills, the people management. I never was really strong in the detailed technical. Neil and his company uh, make. A maker site is one of the leading companies right now uh, using artificial intelligence and it's just doing great wonders many 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 you know major clients have got good investments and, and so he and I have sort of teamed together to really develop this you know five lives to 50 and the sort of that's the five lives to 50 is that you know 2050 the normally the the life cycle of a product is four to six seven years kind of thing so you have five lives uh, in innovation that we need to work through for, you know, by 2050. And so that's sort of the brand and the vision. The other thing that we really are working on is that here again, part of who we talk to, we want to talk to the product managers. We, as we more and more, we talk to companies, it's the product managers who are really responsible, not at the enterprise level, but at the product to do the scoping, to do the input for the Absolutely. marketing, all that stuff. Yeah. And so our, our goal is to, Neil will share from a technology standpoint. I'll share from a people management, you know, how do you get people to change kind of perspective and really not just on the what and the why, but here again, focusing on the, you know, on the how. And we're going to interview. We're going to interview people and companies who have done it. If you all have done things like this, would be good to, to do cross cross-utilization of. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Let's do that. In fact, I think we have some our customers or that right. we know that have been successful at this also would be a great candidates there to involve. So it's a great idea. Look forward to that. I feel like we spent a lot of time talking to ourselves and whenever we get the life cycle community together and, you know, some of the people who are users of it, the, not the real designers, but the, you know, who are a little bit more in, in the translators kind of role, what often comes out of it is a big aha and a big desire to break down the silos. Yeah. And from you and I previous conversations, it's not the silos are we're fighting people, but it's just we're doing it our way. We're doing it our way for 30 years. And you got another group over here, but you got to start breaking that down. Agreed. Every, everybody has to change to really drive a more. Yeah, I don't think, you know, that frozen middle, I don't think it's it's as you said, it's it's not malintent. It's oh, just no. it's just you know, you're being driven by different business demands, different things. And uh, you, yeah, you got to focus on, on your objectives. You know, you've given the board on things about revenue or profit or whatever they are. And so it's hard to change. You don't have, the, as you said, you don't have the resource, you don't have the time. So it's something we need to break down though, because I've heard that as well. 
Yeah, and the the thing following up on that, Paul, that I think is interesting. I I did a thought stuff a couple of years ago when pandemic first came out, and I realized why the world responded quickly. Although eventually people still thought that it wasn't really occurring, kind of thing. But uh, initially, it was fought because it it impacted COVID impacted everywhere, everyone now, and the key word is now. And a lot of the problems in the sustainability field, it's not a 2023 issue, it's a 2050. Well, I'm a business manager. I want to be in this role, you know, for four or five years. Well, that's not even close to 2050. So it it makes it difficult. So to me, part of the how is to sort of illustrate the urgency and how to make it urgent that I need to act now, not five years from now when my successor takes over the job, but now. So it, yeah. now, right. now, you know, kind of thing. I like that. I like that. It's a very, very accurate way to look at it. <laughs> well, Jim, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, really great conversation. I think you've just scratched the the surface of, of, of all the things that you could share for the, our listeners who are focused on innovation. And we have a lot of product managers that are listening. So I think your message is certainly resonating with the people that are, they're probably nodding their heads as, as you're talking. Yeah. Is there any final comment you want to make or something you said, I oh, we should make sure we, we discuss that before we, we close up today's session? Well, just a sort of a pitch of the Five Lives to 50 podcast that Neil and I are doing. The first podcast was on the role of the product manager. So okay. we don't go into it to the micro, micro detail, but we just sort of illustrate the importance, for, at least from our perspective, why the product manager is a key person to help accelerate and be the catalyst uh, for the change that I think we're all looking for. Excellent. Excellent. That's great. We'll make sure we put a link to that in our show notes for sure. Perfect. All right, Jim. Well, thanks again for stopping by and, and let's, let's do some more. Let's, let's maybe dive into uh, these golden rules a little bit more and say, well, what does it really mean? I think that'd be fun. Yeah, definitely up for it. And thanks for the opportunity. And maybe next time I'll be able to show you the beautiful Costa Rica in the background. <laughs> there we go. I'd love to see that. <laughs> great. Okay. And thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Jim is a great guy. Uh, you can expect to hear more from him. Do follow him. Uh, we'll put links in the show notes. Uh, he's active on LinkedIn for sure. And he's got his podcast and he's, I'm sure he's working on some books and other materials. So uh, just follow him and see where he goes. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Take care. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week for Innovation Talks with Paul Heller. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For additional information on today's topic, check out sophion.com, S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com, where you will find plenty of innovation-centric content and corporate best practices. If you'd like to discuss anything with Paul or would like to get in touch with the show, email us at talks at sophion.com.